Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and I'm your host for Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is M. Randall O'Wain. He is a lecturer of creative writing at the University of North Carolina and serves as a National Endowment of the Arts Writing Fellow at Beckley Federal Correctional Institution in Beckley, West Virginia. He's the author of the short story collection Hallelujah Station, and his most recent book is Meander Belt, Family, Loss, and Coming of Age in the Working Class South, which is published by our friends at the University of Nebraska Press. Randall, welcome to the program. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Randall, my first question for you is, what is an art monster? <laughs> you know, that was stolen from Ginny O'Phil's uh, Department of Speculation, actually. Um, and it came from... So Misha Marin, the novelist Misha Marin, and I have been together for 13 years. Um, and when we met, we were both um, in our early 20s and very much like trying to figure out how to be writers. I, I'd already written two failed novels at that point. And so what I needed to figure out actually was how to write, mm. literally, you know, mm. like how to tell a story that made sense. Um, she was already ahead of me, I think, in, in that vein and just needed practice, you know. So w- we both kind of like helped each other. Um, and then soon after we started submitting and then soon after that we got even more serious and even more serious to the point where um, when I got accepted to grad school at the University of Iowa, she didn't get accepted to any grad school, which was really awful and um, yeah, it was, it was a really surprising and awful. I mean, I can't think of a person, a better candidate her MFA programs, you know, than her. So it was really surprising. And so she doubled down, you know, as anybody would and, and took that frustration and wrote Sugar Run, you know, while I was in school. And then while in school, you have to kind of be super dedicated to craft anyway. And so then our relationship started taking this strange turn where we started having to make dates because otherwise we weren't hanging out at all, except for we would maybe like, at 11 o'clock at night, go get a beer with our roommate or a friend or something like that. Um, And after, I I think starting around then, she started saying, you have to let me be the art monster. You know, like, you have to let me be the art monster. You have to let me do it, you know? Um, And so then we've taken turns with that statement. You have to let me be the art monster. Now, you know, like, I can't give you anything. I can't give it, you know? Um, So that's, so yeah, that's what it is. That's where it came from. Great, thank you so much. And Misha did write an essay um, about that period, not getting into an MFA program, which I can link to in the show notes. Yeah, for yeah. Salon. Yeah, yeah. And thanks. Um, and Randall, I had the honor of hosting Misha on this program a few months ago, and I spoke to her a little bit about the Beckley Federal Correctional Institution yeah. in West Virginia, and I'm sort of fascinated by this place. What does a writing fellow do at a federal correctional institution, and what drew you to this work? Yeah, I, well, I've always <clears throat> been activist-centered, you know, um, and the more that I got into higher education and the more privileges I started to obtain, um, that activism started to kind of, I needed to renegotiate it from being like someone on the street um, or doing protests or playing music to to using the skills and access that I now had. 
Um, <clears throat> and so prison work, as well as w- Misha and I have also taught in homeless shelters and um, she's done work in domestic violence shelters. So it's been really important to take this thing that we love and that we do and, and sort of give it um, or give space more, more accurately to, to people who might need it. You know, um, not in terms of therapy, but just in terms of expression. Um, so then um, a writer, a visiting writer, we are actually funded by the NEA, the National Endowment of the Arts. And there's about, I think, 15 federal prisons that, across the country that have the same funding. And every, every like, other month, I think, we all have a meeting, all of the different sort of writers and directors um, from, from all over the country, uh, just about... Mostly it's about how to continue working with the staff, the prison staff. They're not the easiest people mm-hmm. to work with because they believe strongly in punitive measures, and this is a non-punitive, in fact, rehabilitative, re- rehabilitative approach. Um, and so they're kind of always getting in the way on purpose. Um, so medium security <clears throat> is so fascinating to me. I actually work at Alderson. I switched over to the minimum security prison, mm. women's prison in Alderson. And it's a very different, so, so in medium security men, that would be mostly violent offenders um, who are uh, there now, or large drug felony charges or, or something like that, or people who have been moved down from maximum. You don't really have, much of the population has not gone to school uh, much of the population has not even finished high school. Uh, much of they have not thought about themselves in relation to storytelling, probably since they were children. Um, and so you literally have to empty your pockets of everything, and and you are escorted behind multiple fences into the prison, um, which is the strangest feeling in the world um, when you're walking across their territory. This is a place you are allowed to enter. Uh, where a population has no exit, you know? It's a terrifying... Um, uh, and they're also large, too. I'm a very small man, you know? <laughs> so I feel like they're like just this tiny little, like, um, Ichabod crane going in mm-hmm. there. Um, but what I loved was um, how... how they took to it. They really take to it. And they really, in a lot of, in a lot of ways, need it this story, the storytelling. They, they're allowed to read and, and then discuss and they've never been able to have that chance before. They're allowed to write and they read their work aloud and have others uh, give back to them and discuss what they're doing and they've never had that before. They've never, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing, but it is like, I'm gonna say it's like a, not a gross generalization. Um, and it feels necessary. Um, I love my work in the minimum security prison, but it's different. Mm-hmm. Most of those women have PhDs. Um, they're, they were CEOs. You know, they, they have wealth. The people who visit them, you know, went on visitation day, there's Porsches and, and Range Rovers. And, you know, it's a, it's a completely different world. Uh, there's no fence surrounding the entire prison. In fact, if you go in, it kind of just looks like a, a bunch of landscapers on break, you know, <laughs> like leaning against the wall. Completely different atmosphere. And I love them, and, and, and they needed it just as much. But they've had it, this experience with stories. So, so the reason why I bring that up is sometimes I feel guilty, mm. you know, like I, that I need to go back to the medium security prison because they have no one there now. But it comes down to I drive an hour to go to the medium men's or I drive 15 minutes to go to the minimum mm-hmm. women's. And so it comes down to, I don't know, 
practicalities. But mm-hmm. but that's what that's what we that's what we do. And generally, um, it's an open genre course because you'll have people who are like going to want to write songs or poetry or fiction or nonfiction, and just giving them a space to do that. Let's talk about your new book, Meander Belt. I wasn't sure what to expect from this book. I was not expecting a masterpiece of the genre, which now having read it, I do believe it is. Your forthcoming book, Hallelujah Station, is a short story collection. How do you make the jump between writing fiction and writing a memoir? That question is um, really fun and entertaining for me because um, I never wanted to write this book. Mm. I really didn't. Um, I was always from fiction. Um, I liked writing um, essays in, in, in terms of criticism. You know, I love criticism. Um, and would do that, though I've never really even published it. I just do it for entertainment. So I, I've, I've always been a fiction writer first. Um, and when my father and brother... You know, they both die three years, three years apart from one another. And I felt like that story kept filtering itself into every piece of fiction that I wrote. I was just retelling and in various ways this, this grief, our relationship, our lives. And it was bad fiction. It was really bad fiction. And so then I started considering um, telling it true, slant, Mm. but true um, and and that's what sort of kind of like led me away and when I applied to the nonfiction writing program at Iowa it was also to learn what that genre looks like you know um, and and how to do it well um, not saying that I know how to do fiction well but I, I didn't know anything about the, the creative writing, creative nonfiction genre at all um, and so <clears throat> I put um, the novel that I was working on that I've then returned to on hold and then spent those three years focusing solely on, on nonfiction. But when I graduated, and this was in 2015, and I was on my own, um, and Misha and I were living in West Virginia. Not that we didn't have work, um, and that felt good for six months or something like that, but then it starts to feel kind of crazy. Um, and we were both being art monsters to the extreme because there was this like pressure of non-existent deadlines, but of life ticking by. Um, and I was fully immersed in in this book, in this story, and it's a sad, sad story. Um, and in the beginning, these fictional characters from my short stories would kind of like start taking over for a while, and I would take notes like, what are, what are they? What are they like? What's the situation? And be like, oh, I can't deal with you now. I'm I'm working on this very serious book. And then eventually, it was almost like I, like, my other creative, the other creative side of my brain was saying, just stop, stop looking at those photographs, stop reading those letters, stop rereading that essay, and just come over here, where it's fun, you know, where it's a little bit more playful. I mean, they're all, all of the characters in the short story collection, collection are in crisis, and I put them through hell, but they're also fun to be with, you know, um, and and so it almost functioned as an, an antidote. You know, it's definitely like um, they, they definitely belong together in a certain sense, you know, um, as, 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 a, as a pairing. Um, but it, it is really interesting, that move, because I see a lot of first-time novelists. One of my favorite books that came out in the past few years was Justin Torres' We the Animals. Mm-hmm. Did you read that book? I have not. Uh, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's a slim, beautiful little book, and it reads 
uh, I mean, the writing's amazing, but it reads exactly like Justin Torres' Wikipedia page. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like, it's like there isn't even really much of a, a differentiation. And, and I think, like, okay, you know, um, um, Robin Henley said most people's memoirs were what we used to call first novels, you know, and, and that makes sense. But I could never really, and maybe it was because I tried to force the story into fiction before um, just kind of owning it as truth, but it felt like it would be dishonest to call this book fiction. There was moments when I really, really wanted to, you mm-hmm. know, just for that distancing. Um, and so I tried very, very hard to be as like true to the memories and to the people as I could. Um, but my fiction has nothing to do with myself or my family. And, I, and I'm very happy about that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, listeners, we are going to pause for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with M. Randall Owain. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with M. Randall O. Wayne, author of Meander Belt, published by our friends at University of Nebraska Press. You say that you are not, nor have you ever been, much interested in accuracy. And I'm going to go back in time a decade or so to when Oprah Winfrey selected a book by James Frey called A Million Little Pieces for her book club. This book was marketed as a memoir, though interestingly enough, it was tagged as fiction on the cover by the publisher. Uh, The problem was that James, the author of A Million Little Pieces, went on Oprah's show and presented the novel as if it were true. My question, Randall, is before James Frey, does this type of disclaimer about memory and accuracy in memoir exist? I think I've seen it, and I think I've seen it in some kind of discussions, you know? Um, I, I, I feel that other um, writers who are interested, interested in, like Roland Bars, I'm thinking, um, or John Berger, I feel like or Susan Sontag, I feel like they've been kind of working with this idea of memory and truth um, long before that. And so when I say accuracy, I do mean irrefutable fact. And so if you bend a statistic, then you've lied, you know, or if you alter a historical timeline, then you've lied. But memory, as neuroscientists love to tell us all of the time, uh, is, is a fallible thing. Um, it, it's, an, it's impossibly uh, accurate, you know. I mean, and, and so all I knew when working on this book was that through my grief, I had <clears throat> these memories that were just horribly fucking bright, and they were very true, and they were in my body. I felt them in my body. And so then when writing them, I felt that I necessarily need to inhabit them 
through the body physically and, and, and on the ground, as opposed to um, kind of turning them over cerebrally or intellectually, kind of, a, you know, more removed from, from the body as, a, as like a traditional essayist mm. might. I did try that. It just didn't work. It just failed, you know. And so then there's dialogue and there's, you know, like... Um, I play with images and turn them into symbol. There are all of these sort of um, effects that come from, from fiction that I just had fun doing, and, and it felt like a necessary way of oh, me and my family uh, intimately, um, which meant that I had to forego accuracy. Thank you, Randall. Um, in the first chapter of Meander Belt, titled Mirrored Mezzanine. There's a section where you were standing in a room with many mirrors and you were looking at a string of infinite reflections of yourself and you write, I fear an end because it is a mystery, a phenomenon, the hundreds of replicas I narrate with no conclusion. He is me, but different. He is not me, but looks the same. He is me and is the same. He will go home and sleep and share my future. He will share the opposite future. This section reminds me of a section of a book by pop astrophysicist Brian Greene uh, when he states that if the universe is infinite but there are a finite amount of possible combinations of elements and atoms and such, then I, as a person in the universe, must repeat infinitely. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about this concept that you're getting at in this passage. I love the elegant universe, by the way. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, I, uh, I remember distinctly that feeling of complete and total shift of imagination, staring at uh, adjacent, or not adjacent, but parallel mirrors. Um, and I think that even as a, a young child, I was always, I used to turn my body to the back of the couch um, so that, so that I, my eyes were open, but I'd see like mo not mostly darkness um, and just let my fantasy world go and it would and, and it would I would hitch on a story and I would refine it and refine it and refine it um, and I can remember that from as, as as early as I have memory being that type of that type of kid and then those fantasies slowly um, started progressing um, into um, something that might compared to real life or a real future. And then even before I was nine or 10 years old, I dreamt of being an adult, you know, and, and having this, this freedom um, and I, to, to move. And then I didn't even know what that looked like, you know? I mean, it looked like movies, I guess. It looked like I can go down to the circus and meet like vampire bikers, or I can you know, walk the railroad tracks and find a dead body with my friends. You know, it looked like that kind of adventure that ends with, profundity or, or something, even though I didn't know what that meant either, you know. Uh, and maybe part of that is because I lived in, a, in an inner city that was violent, um, and so I only had the inside of my house, no woods to walk in or, or anything like that. Um, but that fantasy life or that Im imaginary life was always sort of twinned with this knowledge that I could go somewhere else, um, and that when I went there, something could happen. Um, 
I mean, I remember calling Cat's Music, the local music store in Memphis, and asking for a job when I was 10. <laughs> you know, and they're like, sorry, come back in six, you know, eight years or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that continued, I, I think. Um, I mean, it, no, I know throughout most, of, throughout most of my life, I think I still do it. But it became really complicated um, as I kind of, you know, work around in the book when I dropped out of school. Um, because now those fantasies, when I had them, I never, no, no longer got pleasure from them. Or the pleasure was uh, twinned with shame. I'd done something that had removed me from the normal track uh, that, that most people were led to. And so if I didn't fulfill or try to fulfill these fantasies that I was playing out that were so twinned with reality, then, the, then they, were, they were shameful. And so then I started trying to figure out ways to fulfill them, which led me to Montreal, Canada, um, which was a, a fun but also very complicated and devastating trip or led me to get a job at the flea market or then led me to Olympia, Washington while I started a band, you know? So it's like they led me here. I mean, I'm sitting here right now because of that twin relationship between fantasy and shame. Um, and I think going back to those mirrors and remembering <clears throat> remembering how my imagination just popped, that I could, as quantum physics suggests, just reached through, mm-hmm. right? And just on the other um, just to, just on the other side of that glass pane would be a boy who perhaps had the same imagination as I did, or the alternate route of one who didn't need the imagination, one who maybe felt secure uh, in his in his own skin in his life, you know. Um, and I think that that security is <clears throat> something. My parents loved me, and I loved them, you know. But I do think that I was always trying to find a way to feel grounded in myself, in my body. Um, I mean, I, ever since I was a kid, you know. Once again, I would like to thank M. Randall O. Wayne for joining me. Signed copies of Meander Belt can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. Our sponsor is Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please go to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN in the promo code space for three months of audiobooks for the price of one. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.